in check with fintech we have mr bradley riss bradley is the chief commercial officer of checkout.com bradley thanks for coming on the show and thank you for having me very excited to talk about checkout.com today bradley a, a company that's been in the news the last month for all the right reasons and we can really have a good uh, good tour of the company and i hope you can uh, share with our listeners some of the uh, secrets to its success. But before we um, get into checkout, do you mind uh, just uh, telling our listeners a bit about your about yourself and a bit about your own background in the in the world of payments? Yeah, sure. Like uh, most young boys, I grew up dreaming of being a payments professional. <laughs> obviously, that's not quite how it happened. Uh, I fell into the industry very much accidentally during my first stint uh, in San Francisco back in 2009. Uh, fell in love with it, realized that the space was incredibly interesting, like uh, a lot of topics are when you can speak the language, you suddenly have a, a deeper understanding of, of what's being communicated, what the problems are, and to be honest, I've been addicted since then. So moved around a few different companies, collecting a few different, uh, I guess, angles of experience is probably how I look at it now. It took me to Singapore for five years, back to the UK for a year and a half, and actually completed the loop uh, at the beginning of last year, just as the pandemic crashed in uh, and moved back to San Francisco. So very much focused on online payments specifically uh, and have a pretty good, I'd like to think, uh, global experience, uh, having worked at some of the world's top merchants, helping them to obviously execute on their payment strategies. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what, what brought you to San Francisco all those years back? I, I take it you're uh, an Englishman. So well, again, you're probably a relatively young man. You still are a young man, but back in 2007, you must have been a whippersnapper. So what, what brought you to uh, San Francisco back, back then? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's not the, it's not the, what the time is the miles, isn't that how the expression goes, something like that. Um, <laughs> there's been enough of them, that's for sure. I think it was the American dream. I know that sounds really corny to say, but much as I love the UK, the appeal of what was happening in the Bay Area, uh, all of the tech boom at that point just felt like, uh, you know, Disneyland for an adult as far as I was concerned. So very simply, I wanted to go out there and see what it was like. I was not working in the payments industry when I moved. I was working in the social media space, which you may remember in 2007 was itself viewed as, uh, you know, the next hot topic. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's kind of all she wrote four years later, was still in San Francisco, enjoying it, having changed jobs a few times and gained a lot of experience. So no regrets, I think. Yeah, you know, there's a world out there. The more you can see, the more you can take in. Yeah, a fantastic thing to do when you're not so strapped down with uh, personal responsibilities to be able to just up sticks and go check out a new city for a few years, and then things can rapidly develop from there. So I think it's it's paid dividends those couple of years in San Francisco. I, I'm just looking at your LinkedIn. Bradley, and it says M Buzz, but it's got a logo similar to a company I used to um, know quite well, a company called Meltwater. Am I confusing there? Is that a company that's similar to M Buzz? You are not. That is, uh, M Buzz was the social media product or the media monitoring product that Meltwater were launching in the US. That was actually why I made the move across. Yeah. Uh, traditional media monitoring space that they worked in was, again, fascinating, especially back when that company was started at the, you know, the turn of the millennium. Uh, and then obviously social media was rising up and it was the opportunity to work on a new product division and help launch in a new market. So, yep, you're correct. It's uh, all one and the same. Great, great. Our, our, we, we have a small recruitment firm here in Amsterdam and we used to be neighbours with the Amsterdam branch of Meltwater. And while we were growing one by one, they were growing exponentially. We were going two, three, four, and they were going five, 10, 15, 25 people in a similar period. This is like 2015, 2016. So I think that company's gone from strength to strength. So um, 
yeah, another exciting company to have been a part of. And then uh, many good years at Adyen, um, you know, gold-plated fintech unicorn. Where did you start out at Adyen back in, what, 2013? Yes. So, I mean, Adyen was, as often happens in, in new and emerging industries as the payment sector, certainly in 2013 felt like, I think incestuous would be the word I would use to describe it. Mm-hmm. Again, a lot of respect for the people there. Um, it was a long conversation uh, leading up to me ultimately joining them and moving out to Singapore. I've been spending a lot of my time in the US uh, working in Asia. So flying backwards and forwards between, you know, SFO and Narita and other airports in, in Asia. Uh, so for me, it was always something I wanted to do uh, very much in the same way that moving to San Francisco felt like the right, the right exposure for me to get at that time. It also felt like having now been bedded in e-commerce or now as in 2013, Southeast Asia just felt like the next wave, like a tsunami that was really building there. So I was very enthusiastic on, on making a move out to Asia. Agile felt like the perfect opportunity at the time. Uh, they were very much at the beginning of their journey in Asia Pacific. Uh, and it's something which I enjoy doing, opening up new markets. So it was a great opportunity to go out there. And I think it worked out well for, for myself and them. So I think everyone's happy at the end of that. But as you said, gold-plated indeed. Uh, payment space was looking for disruption and, and credit where it's due. They definitely provided a lot of, I think, technological advancement in what is fundamentally a technology industry. Indeed. Big source of Dutch pride is Adyen. Um, <laughs> okay, and that brings us nicely to the present day. Now, checkout.com, we were just saying just before the recording began, um, not so long back, it was maybe just another payments fintech company. But I think it's fair to say without too much flattery, um, it's one of the most exciting fintechs at the world in the world presently, you know, thought of in the same breath as your Klarna's and Stripes and, and Revolut's and Adyen's. Um, so this is about the time you've been a senior member of the team there the last say two and a half years or so what has been the change or the driving force in the company over the last few years to take it from another payments company to a top five most exciting in the world payments company tell us tell us what's going on over there happy to or at least my take on it um it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't a snap decision that was made uh, payments is an industry that has an incredibly wide moat And by that, I mean, not just in terms of the technology expertise you need, because it's not just about front-end APIs. There's a lot of things that happen throughout the journey a transaction takes. You're not just working with one uh, payment system. You're working with VisaNet, you're working with BankNet, Mastercard's network. You're working with all of the local payment methods around the world. You're encompassing fraud, really complex data analytics to try and help merchants better understand their payments. Um, And then on top of that, you have all of the regulatory complexities. Uh, It's not a case that you can just click your fingers and become a principal member of Visa MasterCard. Equally, if we're opening our offices in Singapore, we need to be engaged with Monetary Authority of Singapore. If we're talking about the US, it's going to be a different set of regulators. So you put it all together and to become a global, single platform, multi-acquiring payments company, obviously doesn't sound that sexy. It's probably why the marketing team uh, don't ask me for quotes on these things. Um, but it's not something that happens overnight. So I would say in the last two and a half years is it's not the culmination because we're still on the journey, uh, but it's definitely coming to fruition. A lot of things that were put in place well before I joined the organization. I think Checkout always had that vision. I give credit to Guillaume, of course, with that, the CEO, mm-hmm. that the problem in payments is that it has a lot of disparate systems that merchants typically connect into to process their transactions. The easiest way to think of this, and I know that there's a fairly sophisticated audience listening, so I'll try not to uh, 
to, to make things too basic here, but it's ultimately a value chain of different technology platforms that sit in between a website or an app and ultimately where you want the transaction to get to, which is in the card processing world anyway, the issuing bank who of course gave that customer who's now on your website uh, their ability to pay you. So really it's how do you streamline that communication? And that means you need to have end-to-end -end control over the transactions journey or as much as you possibly can. So for us, that means we are a gateway. We are a fraud platform. We have the processing platform that integrates with the schemes. And of course, as I mentioned previously, we tick that kind of arduous regulatory box, which is to get the company into such a position in terms of not just obviously compliance, but capital requirements, the, the experience you need as an existing processor, uh, to basically have the multiple acquiring licenses attached to that. So a little bit of a long answer, but the where we find ourselves today is something that was very much planned for years and years ago in terms of the problems we're trying to solve for. And obviously the only reason we grow is because merchants are finding the problems we're solving useful for their business. Yeah, perfect, perfect. And the, the shorthand version of that answer, I guess, is uh, connected payments, which is a, a term I think Checkout.com has been able to, uh, to trademark by bringing uh, you know, gateways, acquiring, processing um, the risk engine all under one roof. Um, you've connected up these you know, service requirements. Merchants don't have to have multiple vendors for these necessities anymore, multiple contracts. Being able to do them seamlessly through one intermediary, Checkout.com, is much, much simpler for merchants. Um, potentially uh, much more cost-effective as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you think of a model where you have individual companies representing those four pillars, so you have a gateway provider, a fraud provider, a, an acquiring bank who probably is licensing a processing platform, there are four mouths to feed at the end of the day. Um, that's not really the problem that we think we're, we're solving for. Yes, of course, cost efficiencies are always uh, appealing, especially when it comes to payments. Mm -hmm. It's more around getting visibility over that transaction and what's happening to it at the various stages. Uh, there is certain elements you can influence, and many you can't, admittedly, uh, but it's on those fine margins, on the bleeding edges, that you're able to basically show the difference. And to not go down the rabbit hole on this topic, but it really boils down into two key areas. One is how do we help our merchants increase their sales, so maximize authorization rates? And on the other side is how are we providing them data that allows them to typically actually empower things like their risk models? So how do they get a deeper understanding around the likelihood that a transaction is safe or fraudulent? I think the connected payments narrative is, is a really good one. And, uh, and yes, that definitely did come from the marketing team, but they kind of nailed it, to be honest, because it's not just about how we grew up as an organization, which was helping merchants collect funds from their customers. It's increasingly become about the ongoing management of money within a merchant's ecosystem. So of course, you know, marketplaces are a very obvious use case you could solve for there. But if you just break it down into the two ends of the spectrum, it's pay-ins and it's payouts. And equally, you know, there's complexity on the pay-in side, as we've already discussed, but likewise on the payout side, if you're sending money around the world, uh, using new tools like Visa Direct or MasterCard Send or using the traditional banking networks, the idea is, is that any need that any one of our customers has to move money in any way, be it the first inbound collection or the outbound, we want to be able to facilitate that. The second point I'll make, though, is that where we've done this a little bit differently is, is to try and do it under what we describe as kind of a, a modular model or a microservices architecture or a toolbox, I think is probably the easiest way to describe it. I, I, th I think it's naive, especially the enterprise level of payments to expect any merchant to put all their eggs in one basket. There's an argument about you know, resiliency and redundancy that you should have. It's still technology. We may think we're the best thing since sliced bread when it comes down to payment tech. 
Um, but at the same time, technology can go wrong. So you kind of have that first level where at a certain stage, merchants will always choose to use another provider. Um, however, looking beyond that, there's a level of optimization that you're going to have as well. And I think if you're looking at the top end of the industry, you know, the Amazons, the Googles, the Netflix of the world, they're going to choose the best tool for the job. And that may well be checkout in the UK or it may well be checkout in Australia, but maybe it's not checkout in Argentina. Uh, so in that model, we try to build all of the products. So things like how we manage strong customer authentication and 3D Secure 2, it's agnostic. The whole point is, is that we allow people to use these sort of suites of products and services as they choose to. By all means, you don't have to send all your volume to checkout. That's never been our mandate. We want to earn your business by all means uh, based on performance. But equally, there are products that we have that may work ubiquitously across your global payments needs. So I think it's a slightly different approach to kind of Yes, we can absolutely do end-to-end -end and all-in-one, and we think that's our, one of our core, core strengths. But equally, we want to provide the flexibility so that we can be used as a toolbox and merchants can just really pick and choose what they take from our, our ecosystem of products. We started PCN 12 years ago with a view to serving the fintech community from a growth perspective. Since 2008, PCN has helped household names in fintech as well as the largest global merchants grow with the best talent who have specific financial technology experience. If you are a VC with a portfolio of fintech businesses, a scale-up looking to hire the best talent, or a merchant looking to hire a head of payments or an entire payments team, get in touch today for a no-obligation consultation on how PCN can help you accomplish your hiring goals. Fantastic answer, Bradley. You're making quite complex stuff very, very clear. I can see why you're the uh, the CCO over there. <laughs> Thank you. Um, what is a typical customer journey like? I imagine merchants come aboard and they think they just want better processing, um, more authorizations, their end customers to be able to buy stuff from them using checkout.com simplistically but then they start to go on this journey with you where they can be offered fraud protection, be offered uh, reporting and data insights. Do you find that you initially attract merchants with a basic product, then you do a, a good job of it and are able to sell them along to more and more services? Is that how it works? Or do you tend to go for an entire enterprise at once? I'm just wondering how, um, um, you do, let's say, cross-selling or from a, turning a small client into a big client. Can you tell us, a, shed a bit of light on that? Yeah, there's definitely not a one-word answer to that question. Um, I think you have to look at it, merchant size, the geography they operate within or where their customers are based, uh, and the industry vertical are all three factors that heavily influence what will be important to a particular group of merchants. Uh, in some areas, you know, cost is key, where the margins are very, very fine. For example, we serve many fintechs. You mentioned Revolut and Klarna at the beginning. Well, we're very happy to help the, you know, the payments infrastructure that um, enables them to support the businesses that they're running. Um, but obviously, it runs on fine margins. Whereas if you're talking about different sectors, maybe, you know, gaming, so the blizzards of the world, the Sonys of the world, um, it's less about actually the cost, it's maybe more about authorization rates. However, that may not be key in you know, Brazil, it may be about offering a local payment method. So often what we find is we're solving quite complex challenges for merchants. So it may be the bleeding edge markets that they operate within, where we potentially have good localized solutions for them. Um, from that point, of course, yes, we have a whole suite of services, often in the core markets, which they may not consider problematic per se, 
but are areas where there is incremental optimization still to be achieved. And we often see this. We, as I said, kind of at the beginning, we, we don't mandate that you must work with us for this amount of volume or in these regions. It's much more a case that we say, well, look, try us out. We have a single API. It's not that hard to integrate. Uh, once you're on board with us, see if the reporting's better, clearer. See if your transactions have more reliability or process faster. You know, see if we're getting you better visibility in your data and delivering on that promise of higher authorization rates. If we do, then you know, do what's right for your business and, and send the volume where you'd like to. Um, so it, it, it sounds quite soft in terms of a sales approach. Um, obviously, it's not. We have to go pound the pavements. We're not Stripe. You know, we're not, we don't focus on the SME sector. I think they build a really good business doing just that. But when you are focusing on you know, the long tail of merchants and you have millions on your books, you can take a mass marketing approach where your brand recognition, your brand awareness is, is, is very high. In our world, it's not so much how we do it. I mean, the, the analogy I use uh, is, is you know, Amazon's head of payments probably wouldn't pick their next partner by clicking on a banner ad. Uh, they're going to probably take a much more cultivated view using their network, the relationships they have. And so often we're actually not that, that visible. So in terms of a go-to-market strategy, yes, it depends on the region and the maturity we have. Um, but equally, it depends on the problem that the merchant's trying to solve. Sometimes it is cost. And yes, we can be cost-effective. Cost um, but typically, we find that what resonates most with our merchants is the reliability and the quality of the technology platform and that really laser-like focus on helping to squeeze out the highest level of authorization rates possible. Yep. Yep. Fantastic. Um, you have your own um, in-house developed uh, anti-fraud, AI, ML-driven anti-fraud product. Um, how is that as a standalone product? How well is that doing as part of Checkout's suite of solutions? Is it a, a growing part of the business? Is it relatively a new addition to the business? Tell us a bit about the, the fraud product. Sure. I mean, growing certainly is the right word for it. It's very, to say it's a new product would be doing it a disservice. It's something which has been, you know, in a, in a dark room being built very carefully with a lot of market research having taken place for quite a long time. It's also been in use on a, on a beta with a lot of our merchants for a, well, coming up to a year now, I'd say. Results are, are good, but like with all machine learning models, there's an element of training that has to go into it. Um, but I think the fundamental principle about how we built it is to try and do, or to try and build, build it on, on what we consider to be a, a modern basis to fraud management. Fraud used to be about you have a fraud attack, you write a rule, you hope that that rule prevents future attacks. And, you know, 10 years down the line, you're left with 10,000 rules on your book, some of which are probably blocking a lot of good transactions and a lot of which are probably just noise at this stage. So, yes, you do still need rules and you do still need scoring. Um, things like friendly fraud will always be hard to combat. You know, there are some challenges that we won't be able to solve. But if you're looking at the most damaging attacks that happen to merchants nowadays, they're invariably quite coordinated. There's someone who's gone onto the dark web. They've bought 20,000 stolen cards. They're going to go and card test them. So they're going to try and get a, what's called a zero dollar auth. That's where you could go, for example, to a freemium sign up. Uh, that merchant must authorize your card to know that it's legitimate. Mm -hmm. However, what they can't validate at the time is, you know, or what won't be visible rather to the actual card owner at the time is that a transaction has actually taken place. So it allows that fraud network to say, oh, okay, great. We now know that of these 20,000, 1,000 haven't been canceled or reported stolen. And then they're going to go and hit their targets. And, you know, that could be anything, especially nowadays with things like the rise of cryptocurrencies, obviously very vulnerable to that. Anything that has a secondary market value or is or is very liquid by nature. And they're going to do a coordinated effort. They're going to change a lot of parameters around the transaction, like the IP addresses. They're going to be running a botnet, probably, which is supporting all of this. 
Um, they're not they're by, they're by no means stupid. They're very sophisticated. However, there are normally patterns you can recognize. And I think that's where machine learning comes in to complement the, the more traditional approach to fraud scoring and rules is that if you can recognize patterns in real time as they're forming, in theory, you can associate scores next to those and those scores will allow you to block fraud attacks as they're building. Not, you know, 10 days later when the first chargebacks start coming in, mm. but literally in real time uh, and getting a, around some of, uh, you know, the intelligent things that fraudsters are doing, knowing that obviously merchants are using traditional rule-based systems. Velocity checks are great, but if your velocity check is linked to a particular card being used or to a particular IP or a particular email address, these are all parameters that can be quite easily shifted and changed. So you do need a slightly more intelligent. I wouldn't go as far as saying it's AI because it's not, but it definitely is ML-based. Berlin, we're here and ready for your hiring needs. After some short time considering it, we've decided to set up business in Germany, meaning we can be closer to clients and allow room for new business. We're set up and ready to help find your ideal candidates, help build teams and offer up media services. People create networks. Great, great explanation and um, terrifyingly uh, clear example of how, let's say, one of these fraud companies, because they're run like serious corporations, right, with, with KPIs and targets and internal hierarchies and all sorts. They get 20,000 credit cards. They do, you say, they go to a freemium site to test the cards with a $0 transaction to activate it. And then they can use that to go and buy cryptocurrency. Just that little avenue you walked us down there. Bradley is a is a, both amazing and terrifying um, that this is happening all day every day. Um, so you can't overstate the importance of investing in your fraud protection as a as a merchant as an individual as well. Absolutely, you seem to know a lot about how uh, these fraud companies are set up with their KPIs. So uh... <laughs> <laughs> I wish a uh, wish a documentary on it because everyone just thinks it's um, kind of a loner in a basement trying to rip off credit cards, and I'm sure that, that, that that's part of it. But these are well invested organizations with fancy buildings in all over the world, and it's um, so you need a, a similar operation to defend yourself from it, at least. Um, Okay, so some great insights into some of Checkout's products there. Um, how did 2020 go for the company? It's been a year with many, many losers, unfortunately, and a few big winners. And I think it's no surprise that Checkout is in the latter category. It had a, it had a good lockdown. So how did you experience 2020 business-wise? It's a strange year, wasn't it? Um, I think like everyone else, we were rattled uh, around March when it looked like the world was coming to a complete standstill. Mm. Um, I think it's, I mean, it, it, maybe practicing the human cost is, 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 is almost redundant at this point. I think everyone's very well aware of, of the death tolls and, and obviously the lives that were changed. So it's kind of under a very dark cloud that we had a very good year. Yeah. Um, I don't kind of, you know, credit checkout with some forward planning here. This was a black swan event, um, but obviously we work and specialize in a sector where we facilitate online commerce. Um, it was nice, especially to help some of the charities that we did who were actually, you know, delivering face masks and things back in, in mid 2020. Um, it was also nice to just to support our merchants who obviously some of them who were bricks and mortar as well as online, they desperately needed that online channel. And then obviously the ones who are online specialists, uh, a lot of them, their businesses flourished. But ultimately it flourished because customers, you know, consumers on the street couldn't go on the street. 
So they needed to have avenues through which that they could still purchase their essential goods. Uh, again, I'm not trying to you know cover cover checkout in roses here, um, but it was nice to think that a lot of the business we were doing last year was helping the world to con continue to take over. Obviously, our year was was relatively well published, published, uh, publicized. We don't uh, specify exact numbers, um, but of course, it was a very very high growth year following previously very very high growth years uh, for many years before that. So for us, it was it was it actually felt very much like a continuation of the of the sort of exponential growth curve we've had. Um, obviously, the prevailing winds behind everything online. Yes, there's a there's a wide a wide ripple effect that I think a lot of businesses did benefit and ours is no exception to that, of course, being very much as the central fulcrum in many cases to a lot of these online success stories that are maybe much more well publicized uh, because just in nature, they are B to C. So, you know, they're more front of mind for journalists or what have you. Um, but in short, very good year. We managed to expand. We managed to hire over 500 people, which was also great to be able to continue continue growing our headcount, which of course is required to support the ongoing growth. And as we look forward to 2021, I mean, we we predict uh, another good year ahead. Uh, again, a lot of this is not even necessarily about cracking open new markets, although we are continually kind of marching around the world. Um, a lot of it's just continuing to grow to an earlier point with some of the existing, especially larger customers we have. Uh, you know, relationships which are two years old doesn't mean that we are working with them in more than 10% of their jurisdictions yet. So. A lot of it's around the continuation and 2020 was was actually staying true to our principles in many ways, not trying to change anything because what we were doing at our core was kind of where the world was moving to due to no benefit or cause of our own uh, during 2020. Yep. I see the, um, the headcount land grab that was quite well publicized. Obviously, we have a, a, a recruitment company as well. And we look at the stats for the prior year to see who's who's shooting up. And I think checkout almost doubled um, from 500 to 1,000, was it approximately? Your research is is on point. That's uh, exactly what we did. And I mean, I think we're anticipating another 750 or so this year. I um, mean, if you're looking at our regional offices, uh, I mean, the US, we're approaching 40 now here, but we're going to be over 100, we predict, by the end of the year. So it's very much a continuation. Um, you know, the show must go on to an extent, but equally, these aren't hires made in <laughs> just against some sort of random, you know, bar graph that someone's told us we should be following, they're very much to help support the ongoing, especially development in the product and the technology, um, but equally just to try and put boots on the ground around the world so we can still provide that local expertise. Because uh, while payments is incredibly global in terms of a need and most of the customers we serve, they're very global and their products may not change that much as they go international, how people pay for their products certainly does. Yeah. And just jumping back a little bit, you mentioned that Checkout was able to help bricks and mortar retailers make the move online if they hadn't done so already. Um, that's a fantastic thing to do and, and somewhat philanthropic even, because um, I don't imagine that's a terribly uh, high margin uh, pursuit, but a, a very good one nonetheless. Um, was that a, uh, a fair chunk of what you were able to do last year? Did you have a small team sort of dedicated to helping bricks and mortar companies become uh, become online savvy? Talk, talk us through some uh, some examples there. So it wasn't philanthropic. <laughs> At the end of the day, we uh, we do still need to charge for our services. However, on the philanthropic front, we did announce recently that we are going to offer no fee processing. So any fees that are levied by the banks and you know the schemes, we don't control. But for any charity who works with us, we won't be charging any fees for our services from this point forward. 
Great. So that is genuinely philanthropic. Yeah, However, last year is related to the bricks and mortar. Again, we've been doing this just organically as I think you know, most retailers would recognize that online is an important channel, but we also saw a lot of convergence. It's quite hard nowadays to say, was it an online or an offline transaction? Uh, one, of the, one of the companies we support is called Y5. They're a great company and, and their business again predated COVID, but actually aligned really well with some of the some of the needs that I think these establishments will have going forward around enhanced, well, social distancing, enhanced uh, hygiene. So for example, you know, they hook into the local Wi-Fi, that's how their product works. And then if you're in a coffee shop, you're able to order your coffee through the free Wi-Fi they offer. So no app download, you don't need to download an app every time you go into a store, but you can basically order your coffee and it's effectively, you know, click and collect. But of course that takes place on your phone, maybe as you're walking towards the establishment mm. or as you just walked in the drawer to hook into their Wi-Fi. Um, and, you know, you can touch your or pick up your coffee without ever having to be within six feet of another human. So there are lots of little stories like that we saw kind of pulled out where I wouldn't necessarily say they were created by COVID, just COVID accelerated uh, their entry into the markets as well. But it wasn't a specific team we had uh, designated to say, OK, let's go and talk to every bricks and mortar retailer. Um, we just found a lot of them found their way towards us. I think, uh, again, depending on the market we're talking about, but our star is shining quite brightly. And I think our expertise in online is now quite widely recognized. Yes. So I think it's just a natural avenue for people to come towards us if they're looking to enhance that side of their business. Yep, agreed. Um, about one month back, I think you had another very successful uh, funding round. I think you're now Europe's second most valuable privately held fintech. Is that is that the case? Am I quoting that accurately? You are indeed. Klarna have, uh, I think, surpassed us, if I'm not mistaken, at this stage. Um, again, evaluation is evaluation, and it's 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 nice to have these milestones. Uh, it is. It kind of tells you you're doing something right, and validation from investors. I mean, especially we're lucky enough to have a great cap table, and the ones who are uh, alongside us there, are, we really view them as the best in the world. Not just they have deep pockets; it's much more than that. They have real real thought leadership and a great vision for where they think the world is going. So them aligning with checkout and vice versa it, it feels like a great union but also a validation of the mission that we're on ourselves uh, the 450 million raise was great um, we have been profitable since 2012 so this is not capital that's required to turn the lights on um, it is both growth capital well i just say it's growth capital because that may mean obviously continued investment in headcount for example to invest in our products but equally uh, it could mean to go back to a, the, one of the very early points we had on this talk uh, you know, if you're going to into new markets, regulators often require you to meet certain capital requirements. So this money allows us to do that, basically. It allows us to continue on the journey we're on without having to worry or look to the sides at any point. Really, this gives us a lot of a lot of runway ahead of us to continue rolling out the existing core products and also launching new ones. Yeah, a, a lot of clout. I, I never knew that um, some jurisdictions require a certain capital minimum to enter the country. Is that like you, you have to have X in the bank account to get a certain license in, in, in country Y? Is that what it means? Or I think to say it kind of broadly, it instills confidence in regulators if you're able to show that you have substance in the business. Yes. And obviously substance is based onshore. That's always, uh, I think, appealing as well. And it's not just regulators. I mean, I'm not going to go into the murky world of Visa MasterCard. They're very well-run companies, but they also have capital requirements uh, if you want to do certain things with them. I mean, if you think about, for example, payouts, which we touched on, in theory, you know, we could be forwarding those funds ourselves. So sometimes the capital requirements are a business decision that we may make too. 
So there's a whole, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a bit of a smorgasbord of, uh, of, of regulatory uh, necessities around the world, but having a large, a large balance sheet never hurts. Indeed. Does Checkout have appetite to acquire smaller companies or are you really kind of native tech and product driven? You prefer to develop your own stuff. Can I say yes and yes to that? Um, it, it feels like what we did, we did acquire two companies in 2020, Process Out, mm-hmm. which focuses on orchestration, um, which I think is becoming an increasingly important part of the payments industry. My, my view on orchestration, not to kind of get too sidetracked on that, but it's a great stepping stone for merchants who recognize that, hey, you know, payments isn't a one-stop shop game. My business has grown a lot. There may be differences between providers. How do I start exploring that? How do I benchmark my current performance? Well, that's where orchestration can help you. And having Process Out, who was the very clear category leader, um, obviously come on board with us uh, a year ago. Yeah, it's been fantastic. It really complements the core services we have. However, it still is run very agnostically uh, so that merchants are able to get that objective view of their performance. So it was really you know, a very complementary product. However, that team is also brilliant. Without uh, without fail, everyone who came on board has been has been uh, really instrumental in in a variety of areas across the business. So having them on board was also one of the big appeals. So it was both the technology that we want to obviously, of course, to fully integrate. We don't want to be running multiple technology stacks long term, mm-hmm. um, and of course, the team and the expertise they bought to help enhance the existing products we have. We also bought Pin Payments, who have a lot of expertise in the SME space. For example, uh, I'm not saying we're going to be moving into SME in a, in a hardcore focused way in the next weeks, but it is great to have that sort of knowledge in-house now. And equally, it was nice to have additional business in the, the Australasia region. So again, it helps kind of cement, our, cement our, our presence in that region. But I think whenever we look forward, and again, I'm not speaking for, for maybe the entire company on this, but I think any acquisition would have to align with the core mission we're trying to facilitate. We don't want to buy companies for the sake of it. It's not about running multiple technology instances. Um, but there will be, on occasion, companies who align very closely with what we're trying to do. However, core to any acquisition we would look to make would be making sure that it still remains seamless for our merchants. So again, unifying the technology is one of the key areas we look at if we were going to look at any future acquisitions. Okay, fantastic. Process out. Where, where are they based? Is that an English company? or? So they were headquartered in Paris. I think that team is now... Uh, to say scattered to the wind is wrong. They've moved strategically to our various uh, regional offices. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, some are now based in our London HQ as well. Um, but Process Out, that team was founded in France. The beauty of something like uh, of Process Out is that unlike when you're doing full end, full stack acquiring, where you need, again, a lot of regulatory oversight, theirs is a pure technology play. So their services are available just globally. You could anyone in, you know, if you're in Uganda, if you're in New Zealand, if you're in Fiji, um, go sign up and you can see how they work. It's free as well. So it was very different in terms of what their necessities were to be more global and they could run very lean. So it was a very small team running very good technology uh, who now have, I would say, a, a good war chest behind them to further invest in that product. Yeah, good luck to them. Fantastic. Very, um, really a great success story for, for them to become part of, of Checkout. Look, Bradley, you've got a broad grasp of, of Paytech globally. Can you uh, look into your crystal ball for us? What is something we can look forward to as consumers or uh, smaller businesses using payment services? What's one very exciting, positive thing that might happen in the next, say, 12 to 18 months in this industry? One very exciting, positive thing. Okay, well, I don't think BTC is going to replace USD just yet. I'm not sure that would be exciting for payment professionals either. Um, (laughs) There are probably... 
A strong customer authentication, 3DS2, it's not sexy, but it's actually going to be really good for both merchants and consumers. Um, you want to have safe transactions as a merchant and as a consumer. You want reduced friction as a merchant, as a consumer. And while no one particularly loves being challenged, uh, be it a one-time password or their, you know, their memorized password for the first instance of how 3DS was launched, uh, I do think that the additional information that's being sent through to issuers on an authorization request, so I'm trying to make this sound appealing, but I'm sorry, I'm having a difficult time, um, but it will enable people to check out in a safer way, there'll be less fraud, It'll be better for issuers, it'll be better for merchants, and as an end user, obviously, as we are ourselves, when we're buying goods, it's nice to have that slight additional comfort zone, whether we know it or not, but equally, it's nice to have our payments accepted in a more frictionless manner. So I'm not saying strong customer authentication in 3DS2 specifically is going to you know, make the world a better place overnight, but we will start seeing it roll out, and I think we'll start to see the issuer readiness, because that is very variegated at the moment, really ramp up as the year progresses. Firstly, as mandates for it kick in in Europe under PSD2, but equally, this is a global initiative. And I think we'll start to see other regions recognize the value this has. Issuing banks make money when their cards are used, so they want this. Merchants want safer transactions and higher auth rates, they should want this. And customers, well, we've covered the benefits already. So I think this is one of those things that's going to improve the overall payments ecosystem in terms of the safety of the card acquiring world. It's, I think SCA is uh, going to prove to be a, a quiet revolution indeed. I think that's a good one to end on. Bradley, it's been a great podcast. Thanks very much for uh, giving your time today. Um, where should people go to find out more about checkout.com? I'm thinking maybe job applicants possibly or business partners or merchants. Uh, where do they go? Well, for anyone looking for a career in the fintech industry, please visit our careers page on our website. Uh, our website actually has a host of information about the organization. And of course, to connect directly with myself, please just add me on LinkedIn. Okay, fantastic. We'd like to leave our uh, listeners with uh, any information about yourself or checkout.com. No, I hope this has been informative. Payments is an interesting space and I hope it came across that I'm quite passionate about it. So anyone who has any interest in discussing any of these topics further, please feel free to reach out. Brilliant. Bradley, thanks very much for your time. Let's uh, let's do it again in uh, maybe six months to a year. Sounds good. Look forward to it. Okay. Bye for now. Bye. Thanks for listening. And we'd like to leave you with a more serious message from a partner, Free a Girl, who are dedicated to fighting child prostitution and impunity all over the world. Hi, I'm Eveline, CEO and founder of Free a Girl. Every day, two million children, especially girls, are being held captive worldwide. They are locked up and exploited in brothels, dance bars, or online, forced into sexual exploitation. Their freedom is taken away, together with their youth, family, and future. We are dedicated to fight sexual exploitation of children by rescuing these girls. Please join us, unlock their freedom and unlock your potential by becoming a business partner. Please visit freeagirl.com for more information. Thank you.